Hello there. Welcome to Where Love Lives, a new podcast hosted by me, doctor, DJ and author, Lulu LaVey. Don't switch off. This isn't a podcast dedicated to romantic love. It's all right. Relax. But instead explores life's pleasures and meaningful connections through conversation with a wide range of creatives, from DJs, singers and musicians, through to writers, artists, directors and designers. Some you have heard of and some you haven't. As this is my first episode, I've decided to kick off with one of the big guns in my phone book, with special guest the funky dread himself, Jazzy B of Soul to Soul fame. They were, of course, a hugely important band for black British culture, which exploded onto the global scene in the late 80s. Many of you know this already with Club Classics Volume 1. This album was a massive influence to me. Tracks such as Back to Life, Come On, Timeless Classic, that still sounds just as fresh now as it did 30 years ago. Can you believe it? God, that makes me feel really old. However, another timeless classic is, of course, Jazzy himself. No offence, Jazzy, who I've been fortunate enough to have known over the last decade. It was an absolute pleasure to have a chat with him about the things he loves, which include the joy of sound, the cultural importance of fashion, football and his close friendship with, wait for it, his pet tortoise. His new book, A Happy Face, A Thumping Bass for a Loving Race, is out this September. And don't forget, follow me at Dr. Lulavey. Don't be shy. I love to hear from you. And do please subscribe to this podcast. We're lovely. Hi Jazzy, how are you doing? Good. Scraping through as they say it's Tuesday. Oh God, how are you feeling? How was your weekend? What did you get Actually, up to? Actually, um, most weekends are pretty muted at the minute in terms of, um, I mean, football season's just come to an end. Mm. Um, well, we're going to talk about football, aren't we, at some uh, point possible. today? But the other thing is, like they say, the calm before the storm. So maybe summer may arrive at some point and um we yeah. must have quite a lot of gigs being booked in haven't you yeah i've seen a few, a few big bills coming in there has been could we just like quick pause a second please mm-hmm. is that right let me just make sure if yeah no is. hello all right can you call me back in a bit i'm just in an interview sharon all right so sorry so talk so what have you got coming up gig wise at the okay so we um we start off sometime in june i believe um car fest for details on that do check the world wide web soul to soul.co.uk and then we embark on all these other um festivals and stuff which leads us around to the club classics tour which will I think starts in September and we finish the first half in October at the Royal Albert Hall. That's and quite epic then. Yeah, we're looking forward to that. And so where's that going then? Where's that That goes traveling? sort of like up north, around, I think, west and then back down south. And like I said, ends at... Um, the Royal Albert Hall. And then we pick up again um, after we come back from Australia and then we go the other way around and then we finish at the Roundhouse in Camden. Right. Which will take us through to 2022. My God, I'm exhausted just hearing about all that. <laughs> How are you going to manage after all this time in lockdown? Well, I've got to be honest with you now. It's been over 30 years in the game, so... You've got the muscles. It's muscle now, memory. You know what it is? It's, it's, it's this thing they call time management. So um, a lot of things are planned, and there's a plan A and a plan B. Uh, and trust me, this has only recently happened over the last maybe 12 years or so. What, uh, the time management aspect? Yeah, the time management aspect, because it was like, I've got to preserve myself, you know? Um well, we did talk about this the other day, didn't we? About because I've just turned fifty, and you were giving me some solid advice. So you're coming out to the end. No disrespect for the end part of your fifties. I'm ripe now. I'm, I'm, so you've learned. So this advice you've given me is like. So what have you? What are the biggest learnings now about being in your fifties than you didn't have when you started out thirty odd years ago? It's all these inhibitions, to be honest with you. Um, the fact that you you know you've seen a few things happen. Uh, and quite possibly on more than t- 
two occasions. <laughs> so you you somewhat know what cul-de-sac not to go down. Oh, yes, I know that one. You know, yeah. um, we've all been down that, that Well, you see, the funniest thing is, Lily, you say we've all been down, but, you know... Not everyone really has. No, <laughs> only the deviants amongst us. <laughs> so obviously we know each other, just for the people listening. Um, so we met, when did we meet? Probably about 15 years ago, maybe? Was it that long? Possibly. That album, I did the PR for your album, That was with Back Qu- to the Africa Centre. Quinton. Yeah. Sus. Was Strut. it on Strut, wasn't it? Strut. I did the PR for that. When was that? That must have been... You know, I I have... This is one of the things that happens this side of the age group. You haven't got... It wasn't strut. It was casual. I was a casual. I thought it was casual and strut. Oh, God, I can't remember. I think it was a collab. I just remember this really nice gentleman, Quinton, and um, he he was really, really good. It was nice to meet him. Um, So it must have been at least... I think it was 15 years. Possibly, yeah. I think scarily so. But I remember when I first had a meeting with you, um, I was quite inti- you're quite intimidating. You don't know I've you. I've heard this. But now I know it's this crock of shit and you're just a It's not crock of shit. It's most people's insecurities in the beginning. Oh, OK. You know? Well, you're a big figure. To, you well, know, this is quite... it, you know, but they always say you're never judged a book by its cover. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I guess fortunately I've made it work for myself. So, exactly. and, and and that's what's happened in my strange, um, what do I call it, journey, exactly. <laughs> reflections of my journey. Um, just the fact that yeah, it's been a lot of people's misunderstanding that have. Um, I think it's always it often happens really. when you have when there's a, a key figure in you know British culture like you you know people have certain preconceptions about yeah. what you're like you know. Yeah. But talking about judging books by their cover, you have a new book coming out. So it's your autobiography. I have the book coming out, yeah. I, I say the book. It's because it, it has been over 12 years coming. It, it, it just came to be in a really interesting way where, again, I, I, I just didn't necessarily want to follow the norm. So tell us about the books. It's quite visually led, isn't it? Yeah, well, uh, um, it's reflections of my journey in terms of I've, I've managed to, you know, maybe um, capture and, and, and have all my own archives, which enabled me to do the book in the way that I've managed to do it. So isn't it in the format of kind of like a box set from what I've seen? Well, um, it, it it's just... A, it, it's. The the way the book is presented, it's like um, it is like a piece, and, and and in terms of it being a box set, more than the fact that I think it, we're just over just under three hundred pages, and every page there's a visual reflection of what we're talking about in text, and what makes it unusual is because it's basically my journey, um, which started out. Um, you know, nearly 60 years ago. 1915 or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you're not that old, sorry. Post the Second World War. Um, no, but um, I can share with you that the first gig I actually did, which they, now it's called professional, but I got paid for doing it, um, was 1977, the Queen's Silver Jubilee, where um, when I say... Um, so you must have been 14. I was, yeah, just under 14. So mm. I was, you know, just... Moving from um, one school to... No, I was in school. I was just past the post-punk era. Uh, and and I think I was just maybe... Yeah, maybe just the time of Ziggy Stardust and um, people like that coming up. And I'd taken a shine to that style of music. Because post that era, I would have been um, working as a sound engineer for... Um, um, oh, my headphones just fell off. Hang on a minute. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Wearing headphones and glasses at the same time can be a little bit problematic. <laughs> During that period, I, I was working for Tommy Steele. So I was just kind of, the world was just changing again in those mid 80s and being exposed to lots of different things. So the idea of the book is really a reflection of my journey from my humble beginnings in the game, as it were, when there was a class system. Mm-hmm. Um, through to where we are Mm. uh, I think it's really this is a really good way to sort of go into the kind of the concept of this show Where Love Lives so the idea of this show is kind of look back and reflect on your life so far 
and examine all the things that you love outside of romantic relationships. What's the theme music going to be like, Eamon Andrews? We're lovely, we're we're lovely, we're lovely. Follow me down, deep down, we're lovely. I actually thought, like, this could be This Is Your Life. You could have a grime version of This Is Your Life. You give me ideas now, Jazzy, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I might have to re- might do a different theme every episode. That's a really That'll good idea. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So you sent me a, a, a list of uh, four or five things that you've connected to over time. And one of the first things on your list was your audio hi-fi. So when we're talking about your first gig and moving into kind of sound and audio, let's start there. So obviously it's a huge part of your life. Yeah, I guess um, audio hi-fi sound system technically is where it all started. And like I said, by trade, I'm an engineer, sound engineer. So I guess the two things go hand in hand. Um, in the early days, we used to build stuff, um, go down to the old Edgware Road, um, Henry's or RTVC. Um, also, there used to be a, a, a place called Tandy's Radio Shack, which is an American version. I remember that, yeah. yeah. And we used to buy components and stuff like that. So you and, built the sound and, system. Well, I built my first preamp like that. Um, um, I remember, I think it was a Chuak preamp. And, I, I, you know, it, was, it worked so well. As they say, the rest is history. Everything I'd done from there, I, I'd buy bits and sort of, tried to take it apart and up the game as it were and spent lots of time around people who were really good engineers and and, and great at physics and working things out so where did you learn to be an engineer to start with um i i i I was a t-boy over at um nova studios when i first started out as um working under richard dodd and my job was to look after the equipment I think I remember you telling me about yeah. this, yeah. So um, working in the field there, in the old rock and roll field there, was behind the scenes. And So how old were you when you were doing that? I was a teenager because I missed out all of the... Um, a little bit of a chunk of my life, or chunk of your life as a teenager, but I, I put that into the music business and... Um, yeah, I you must have lot. seen a lot as a T-boy. Like, Absolutely. I mean, I was around um, some great people... Um, any you know anyone from um, Bidu all the way through to Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer used to be um, a whiz kid back in those days. The only guy that could put a so how did he like his tea? Hans didn't really drink tea at that time. Um, Hans was uh, he would have been like a a young he would have been in his early twenties, quite full of himself, but a very confident guy but was a, an absolute wizard. And later on, Hans Zimmer was the guy who um, gave me the opportunity to use his studio, which was in Lily Yard at the time, which was in Fulham. Um, Howie B was um, an assistant engineer there at the time as well. Um, well, the circle is quite small in terms of everybody really that's is. connected. Now, you know, when you start talking about it like that, so that's how I basically started in the game. And then the hi-fi side of it was, um, again, like I said, building equipment and then being able to f- afford equipment. In the beginning, it was all like secondhand and people passing. This is when you could repair stuff and build stuff. So like I said, I was around a lot of technical people. And so I this fe- was, sorry to interrupt, so this was kind of late, so this would be late Early, 70s? this is early, you're talking about early 80s now. Early 80s. Yeah. So sound, would it be like, because there's a lot of stuff going on in New York around sound being really important, you know, around the sort of the Paradise Garage and all... Well, it's funny, we always talk about that, but my roots are really steeped much here in the UK. Mm. So where the the commercial end probably would have looked to New York, you know, Larry Levan and, Mm. and the Paradise Garage and all those sort of things, there was a thriving industry right here in the UK. And culturally, the sound systems were, were, were part and parcel of that. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of the commercial, maybe the more, um, let's say, clubby, um, dancey end of it, you know, you had people, anyone from um, Steve Walsh, the mm-hmm. great Steve Walsh, to Froggy. and Fro- mm, when Froggy, those, classic Essex. When, you, when those guys played, you know, they had big sound systems as well. 
um, he used to have um, a system over at Royalty in the Southgate as well. I followed loads of guys who had big systems in those days because of, um, as a kid, Alexander Palace, Emperor Roscoe, a DJ called Emperor Roscoe, played on a massive sound system when Alexander Palace used to do roller skating. I used to go there as a kid. Um, anywhere from that, almost, um, you know, was where I really got into sound systems because... In my house, all my brothers had sound systems. I grew up in a community where sound systems It's was. more about... I mean, the whole sound system culture is about community. It's, Absolutely. It's symbiotic. It's hand by hand, isn't it? And the, the elements that make that community were things that, as a geek, I was into, which part and parcel was electronics and sound system. But not just noise, but detailed sound. And that's how I became an engineer. So how, I mean, from someone who isn't a sound engineer, but I appreciate sound, how did you work your, how did you identify what was a good sound? Is it more organic listening process or, you know, or is it more technical than that? It's not necessarily more technical or anything like that. I guess, you know, the argument is sound is sound. When I was coming up in the analogue days of sound, you know, um, you always thought you've only got two ears, you know, um, and then I came up in the days of 16-track and 24-track. And now we use, you know, people are using up into like 60, 70 tracks, you know, recreating um, different sounds. And, um, and what do you think about that? Do you think it's too much? No, or? no. It's all, it, it, all of these things are, it, it's it's food for thought, it's inspiration. It's what, um, it's like somebody's palette, you know, and they create mm. colours. And and art, it's it's the same thing, and mm-hmm. and, and sonics is a part of um, sound that we listen to, mm. and there are different degrees of it in terms of maybe how we or so much of it we take for granted. So the idea is um, a sound that's easy to listen to makes you want to listen is a good sound. Mm. And I think it's context as well, where you are, what the experience is of listening to that sound, who you are. Well, then, you you know, you start, you know, breaking things down into, you know, are you talking about a production? Are you talking about, you know, like different record labels, different producers, et cetera, et cetera. And within the industry of a sound system, the idea is that you're you're playing this this sound that somebody spent a long time creating and its reproduction needs to be justified. And some people, like myself, believe in detail um, because we do spend a lot of time creating a sound. It's also about identity and branding, isn't it? So that it kind of goes with it. Well, I think the, the, the idea of a, of a sound, quote-unquote, um, you know, yeah, depends what you're trying to define. Um, again, you know... I like murky, rich, um, resonating, low-end sound. <laughs> Other people like it like um, very high-end, metallic sound. Mm. And then, I guess, depending mm. on what genre you end up putting these mm, things absolutely, into, yeah. then it, yeah. it, it ends up sort of defining itself. So when you were a kid, when you, when you were little, can you remember the first time you kind of, you know, you were listening or you felt like you were connecting to music in some way? Absolutely. From the Blue Spot Gram in the living room, I used to think people were inside the radio. That's amazing. You know, as a little kid. And the thing that drew me to it was the smell of the horse hair that was used to to acoustically um, dampen the sound of the gramophone where the speakers were against the vowels and and the smell they emitted from and That's dust. an early memory of the smell. Uh, you know the glue, the, the the I guess the type of wood that was used, and and uh, we used to call it the blue spot gram, which was really um, a, a piece of furniture made by Blair Punt or Grundig, and these were great big pieces of furniture that most West Indians had in their front rooms and you know that reproduced sound and as a little kid crawling around that's what caught my attention because sound was everywhere and my first impressions of music as a song would have been what my parents listened to which was anything from country and western um, and folk music at that time um, then um, whatever the sound of the the, the the day was in the pop days my mum was a big fan of Inkelbert Humpledink. That's a, that's a tongue twister, yeah, isn't it? <laughs> um, 
But yeah, music was always around us. So were your so. parents fighting over playing tunes? Or no, no, it... no, not at all. I mean, you know, again, we're from working class background, so my old man was always in charge on that level, but my mum my ran the house. Mm. What <laughs> kind of stuff did he like to play? Again, you, we would have been listening to mainly country and western, mm. probably. Um, and then, because I've got such a big family, um, I was exposed to, you know, anything from reggae, early blue beat and mento and scar from my eldest brother. So how many brothers have you got? Five. Any sisters? There's three. Three. That's. I didn't realise you had so many siblings. Yeah. And I'm the baby of the bunch. Well, I've actually got... My dad had 11 kids. I'm the baby as well. Snappo. So you know what <laughs> I'm saying. Related. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we are. Maybe you're my long lost brother or something. Yeah, I well, they say sister from another mother. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> well, so as the youngest, so did you guys fight over what you wanted to play when you were allowed to put tunes on? By that time, I guess we all um, had our own space, you know, and I guess... Maybe because I was a little bit spoiled, I got away with... You were the little spoiled one, yeah, were you? I got away with a lot of stuff, so... I do think, like, this early formative years around music is so, it's so influential. Majorly. When I was at school, um, we had music lessons. Before school, going to church, music was a big part. I I went to, you know... I was in the boys' brigade and always wanted to play the drums and the snare, never got hold of it, but was handed a, a trumpet wasn't into that but that was how I actually got into music at the boys brigade hearing drums being played um, in unison and the sound of of that marching in that street and the you know how it bounced off the you know the different materials and you have to remember back in those days particularly London was being rebuilt so there was a lot of derelict sites so when you'd pass a place with buildings and the sound became really intense and because, it, you know, you had the snares rattling underneath the, the snare drum and then you'd pass maybe where the adventure playground is or where the park was and then the sound sort of dissipated and you could almost hear an echo of the sound. And I've got really clear memories of things like that. Maybe were all things that got me into music and wanted to know how it worked. But again, this is really indicative of con- it's like really illustrative of how important context is. So you're kind of listening to sound in the city that you grow up in. Mm-hmm. So someone listening to sound in a different city, in a different part of the world, could have a different take on it. Absolutely. So it's definitely part of that cultural upbringing and experience. And I'm it? blessed because yeah. um, you know, as a child, uh, we were travelling a lot, so I spent a lot, of, you know, summers in America as well as spending a lot of summers in the Caribbean. So that must have had some influence on you. Oh, hell yeah, Yeah. you know, especially the fact that I guess I I worked out that somewhere like London was unusual. It wasn't like anywhere else. In what ways did it stand out? There seemed to be everything here. From travelling, everything was here. It was all, you know, it's now known as the shopping window of the rest of the world, which it really is. There's a lot of innovation and creativity that goes on here that's unhinged. Whereas where I've been in the Americas, depending on where you live, deems to be where you're at, which then you become a product of that environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And not everybody lives in New York. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So even in the early days, flying out there, buying records, when I used to DJ there as well in the 80s, I played at um, a place called Mars. I used to do residency out there. remember doing long trips of weekends because I wanted to go to New Jersey and it's two different boroughs Mm -hmm. from, you know. So once you got out to New Jersey, it was like, how am I going to get back into Mm. town? So we used to go to the Zanzibar and, you know, listen to a DJ there and then wait for somebody to be going back into town would take us back and then, you know, the next night we'll be at the shelter until it was literally time to get the flight back into... How are your ears, by the way, after all well, these years? Well, what was great as an engineer, I always knew how to look after my ears. Thank goodness for that. So, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't hear what you said either. I got. One, I think my ears are a bit fucked, but yeah. <laughs> no, no that's really smart, actually. Well, that's I mean, good learning. We, you, you were all, I was always... I mean, even the early sound men used to have cotton wool in their ears. Mm. Um because of the resonance of, of, of the wayward 
you know, sonically what was going on was a lot of unbalanced sounds in those days um, and pops and crackles, and which, yeah, would damage your ears at a reasonable frequency. And I always liked, like I said, I was always into detail, so, you know. Yeah, amazing. So thinking about, so obviously the 80s was a big, I mean, every, everyone knows this, I don't really have to go into the big story, but the explosion of Soul to Soul in, when, what, 83, roughly? Well, I mean, 85? yeah, with the, with the sound was um, Soul to Soul started, we changed from the reggae sound to Soul to Soul in 82. 82, right. And then, then post 82, going into like 84, 85 was all the parties, the warehouses, and then when we turned the various corners, when things were at their highest point, we, you know, we left the warehouse party to the Pillets and, and moved to the Africa Centre and set another trend there. Then from the Africa Centre, in the 90s, we set another trend when we moved to the fridge in Brixton. You're just trendsetter, Jazzy. Well, what it is, I guess we came along at a time where, like I said, the, you know, it was really the beginning of all of these things where people... We'd moved out of a class system into one of make it work kind well, of Well, this thing. was a kind of, you know, you've often referred to sort of Thatcherism as kind of encouraging this DIY model that you guys ad adopted and you did it. Well, the, the point was the government just legitimised people like myself and the fact that I was in it for the long haul rather than the short haul meant that, again, for adversity, you make something work. And as a working class black man, that has always been our mantra. And that's from me watching all my brothers, uncles, cousins go through the nonsense that they did. You know, I just took a different direction. And in terms of that, I guess, level of innovation was more based on the fact that I just took a slightly different slant from doing things the way that my, um, you know, elders did. This whole DIY ethic was not just about music, was it? Obviously, you love music. This brings us on to the, the second love on your list, which is fashion. So fashion was a hugely important part of Soul to Soul, starting off by selling T-shirts at Camden Market. That was the first time, well, was no, it? Well, you see, you've really belittled that, Lily. Have I? Yeah. Now, you see, everybody refers to it as merch, and it's really not. My stuff is actually what I would call a way of life. So in terms of what I presented to the public wasn't like I would deem to be merch at all. So we, in those days, again, so you could distinguish who people were, we had our own look. Well, yeah, this is all part of branding, not just merch, uh, I didn't, but we didn't identity. Even, we didn't even know it was branding. For us, it's it was just about our, yeah, it was yeah. just about our identity, mm. where we were a product of our environment. And we grew up in London, and here in the UK, there were so many different things. We grew up in an incredible time, and all of these things mattered to us, an identity, young people growing up, carving our way out there. The canvas was blank quote unquote i mean everyone before us was copying something that i don't think was them you know like you're wearing the mannequin quote unquote whereas lacking in our, authenticity well yeah but i think what we were trying to do was show our identity so there were elements of our class there uh, and and in terms of the detail was about our quality you know, we we chose, we were very much into fabrics and then it was all part of making us have a look, so i.e. the funky dread. So, I mean, talk me through this importance of fashion to you because this is your love, so you, t you, you tell us what that means to you. Well, first of all, you know, being born and raised here in the UK, the, the idea of being, you know, having your identity was really important. And what went along with things was this gentrified or gentrification um, of um, what was happening in terms of our class, you know. And there was always this idea of scrubbing up, you know, going to church, Sunday best, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Mm. We spoke earlier, you're always judged by your appearance. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to look intimidating in a very intellectual and classy way which i believe as the funky dread we were able to capture that but then again there's also the theory of the fact of where we're from lulu so this is about being an outsider this idea I of think being so. an outsider uh, we're from the planet Ard, i know I, have, I was going to yeah. ask you about the planet Ard. yeah yeah so we've been brought down to earth to fight against rap attackers backers and now i've been we've all been here for 
close to 40 years on earth uh-huh. and shining this this light that has finally taken heed and um as they say the weeds are growing what language do they speak on planet Earth? Oh, we speak all languages mainly it's all about expression so any form of expression okay. is, um, is it just, should be a level of communication God's all about expression like as part from your own fashion as it were like the style you put together yourself like what other brands do you look at that you kind of see yourself in if you were well mainly my idea of the fashion was all the guys who made the stuff for me to wear so that would start off with you know Nemeth Christopher Nemeth we were quite close with him because of that Namifan style, which represented London in particular. It had that kind of um, sort of Fagin-y, Oliver Twisty kind of look uh, against the backdrop of our footwear was all by John Moore, again, another British designer. When we were going uptown, we'd rock Joe Casley Hayford, and maybe in the background you'd have anything from Duffers to Michelle Bonassi. So sort of very sort of British vibe. All, all British. Our fabrics were very important. So anything from, you know, Vivian Westwood, we rocked a lot, as well as Catherine Hamlet. In effect, it almost wasn't like you went, ah, oh, I've got to have this, I've got to have that. It was almost like we gravitated to that because the styles, what they were cutting, were the shapes of us, you know, and when you look at Christopher Nemeth and the stuff we wore in the 80s from him, it really defined our our structure and our shape, and it, it allowed us to be bolder in our style. So now, you know, I rock anything from, I guess, you know, Comme des Gasson is also a favourite one of mine. I've got the wallet. <laughs> but you see, <laughs> that, that's all I, I can afford. You know, like all of these things probably were, were, were the imprint um, of you know, great stylists as mm. well that we, we were all around. You know, there were some amazing stylists when I was coming up too. I mean, do you still have an item, a favourite item that you will never get rid of? Yeah, all I we, we keep all our own archives. So a lot of the stuff that we, even stuff that I've bought from back in the day, very early um, stuff from Com from the early 80s, all the way to, you know, stuff that was being handmade and then that I went through a phase as a teenager coming up where we wore anything from Gabici, the different styles, Faris. Have you got have you can you admit some dodgy bit of clothing you might have worn that isn't very cool? Because come on, we've all done it. I'm, or are you just too I'm cool? struggling to feel, but you know, you I mean my book's gonna be one of the greatest illustrators of that because you'll see it's in all different forms. I mean you know, the football terraces were equally as, as um, inspirational in terms of the stuff that we wore. And again, going through the different phases. Yeah, so stylists were... I can't think of... There was nothing that I really wore. That even in my kiddie photos as a kid, because we come from such a large family, and maybe we would have been dressed up as dolls, you know? So it was... <laughs> even those old... I'd love to see some pictures of you. Are you going to see in the book? There's amazing. all pictures, um, you know... But yeah, there's some pretty amazing. Were you cute shots. when you were little? That's for you to say. You All know? right, but, I'll um, let you know about I'll, that. Yeah, you let me know. Um, I know I've got some. We got some more topics to go through, but I wanted to ask you about. Do you still the soul salties? I know it's just it's a, it's just a separate kind of thing about fashion, but this was something you soul to soul is really remembered for. Does that bother you? Do what's you think that? it is too? The t-shirts. No, no. The funky what it, dread tea. No, what's cool about that is because you do ask about it and it is reflected. But most importantly, what we found when we came out of our regional safety, you know, like big fish in a pond, and we started to travel to Manchester and, and up north and that Leeds and places like that and smashing up sound systems <laughs> as we were travelling around. 
And we were all into football, and I mentioned the terraces, so we needed, like, an emblem. Yeah. And that emblem became the funky dress. That's part dread. of an extension of community. Well, the the emblem of um, the soul-to-soul badge, as it were, is what we refer to now as people say the merchandise. And what was interesting in reflection of the funky dread, that piece of art was probably the one piece of art which people didn't find intimidating. And it was something that, you know everybody was interested in and again i think for us it supported an identity because it looked yeah. like us a caricature of us and people could sort of recognize themselves yeah. in that image as well so what happened is that became our emblem and then when we would do big parties we made the t-shirt so the, the punters knew who to talk to if they were in distress or they needed help sure. and this this was just done because we had big numbers mm. and and to understand that and to say why we would put that in place is because we were the first sort of sound system or collective to be inclusive, which meant that the public and, and our punters were part of the play, the scene. They were the scene. We we were the scene. This is like we built a community from there. A community came. And the idea of the inclusivity just allowed everybody, like I said, tribally in London. It's very interesting when you talk about it from a community point of view because you, you, you don't necessarily really see that in London because it's so fast and so transient. It's not until you come outside you, you start seeing the community. But what happened with Soul to Soul, we came from such a small community like the church and then in the church you know the different organizations in the church collectively would get together and congregate and so on and so forth so it was a bit like you could almost take a snapshot of following a football team and we'd play away we'd go to the away game so these collectives or, or, or communities would have functions and gatherings i was always part of that entertainment particularly from north london side which just so <laughs> happened spread all the way to chapel town in leeds so every stop from london birmingham leicester manchester just you know, north <laughs> well all of our people were spread out everywhere and i guess i understood it as a network of people who who had a faith and, and belief in something. That network was as tight as that, that we would physically go every so often to these meetings. That was like when I was at Boys Brigade, which was like when I went to football, you know, so I, I just took a piece of that, a piece of this, and that's how the collective got together. So you talk, you just mentioned football, and that happens to be the, the next one on your love list, mm. as we're going to call it. So... You tell us. Tell us what football means to you. Football and music go hand in hand, music and football. If I wasn't going to be involved in music, I was going to be involved in football. And I, mean, I used to be a footballer. For those who don't know, your son is plays for Millwall. Well, my son is a footballer. He's a yeah. footballer. Yeah, he's okay. a professional footballer. And um, and you used to be a footballer. Yeah, my brothers used to be footballers. I didn't. Uh, I decided to get involved in music for more reasons than one. And my son decided to to um, continue and um, he became a professional footballer so talk us through what's the connection between music between music and football then well Can they you go, explain that music and football go hand in hand you know whether because i can't see it i don't see that connection personally okay well next so, time you go to football um, i've never just, been to a football match oh that's such a shame watch football on telly when the fans come back and every club has its own song I know about the song. I, right. Yeah. Well, then it's all inseparably linked within the motion of that 90 minutes when people congregate and almost like the gladiators go into war. The backdrop of that is music. Every footballer will be motivated by a, a sound again. Mm -hmm. And when you're in a stadium, everybody singing in unison can almost be like when you're in the choir. There'll be points when you're at the football and your hairs are standing on edge because not only are you singing, you say, to build the energy and your excitement and your belief in the club and the organisation, but sometimes it can be, it can transport you to almost hypnotising, mm. hypnotic energy. And you've got, for you to understand that, is to feel the energy when everybody, that's why I always say everybody can sing. And you realise this when you go to a place like football where 
people have songs where they've taken melodies of songs that you know and then they'll put them to a particular chant or a player or something like that in the changing rooms you, you're going to be listening to music to motivate you the the intro to the game there's going to be music in there you know you can go to a game and there's a dj you know you know i never the... really thought about it like that yeah, i really well, didn't you know, and this is the amazing thing every sport would have music so when you were talk i mean i don't really know much about your footballing days so when did well, you they start? were they were the mine was all like um I enjoyed a really prolific time as a teenager coming up, like I said, before I got into music. When I were able to overcome a few hurdles in the industry, like make my mark in the industry, then I went back to the sport and then I sat all my badges up to level three as a coach at FA Coach. So I know you coached your son's team when he was little. Well, I coached the kids in the kids, community yeah. and my son was part of the community. Yeah. And that was over at Market Road. I used to help in a community centre in King's I remember, Cross yeah. called Peel. The kids went there, the local guys went there. That was, again, me talking about it takes a community to raise a child. And again, I was blessed when I was coming up to have a community centre and... Um, you so know, that must be hugely volunteer. rewarding doing Absolute, that. Absolutely, 100%, you know. So and that's do, kind of showing your love of football from different sides, from actually playing it and experiencing it as a player and then helping the, you know, rearing the next gen up through it. You do what you can, didn't you? Mm. And, and I think that is part of how I was brought up as well, you know. You do what you can, you help, you know, somebody. That, um, and did you play music for the for the kids when you no, were coaching? No, no, none of that, no, no, no. And that was another nice thing about when you, you put that effort in, um, just to watch kids grow and you be there almost like in those, you know. I mean, people still say hi to me and you're, like, you're walking down the street. But when I was coming up, there was, in our community, there was a real sense of, um, you know, respect for your elders. And obviously they kind of knew better. But I've got to say, we're living in a different time now. Aren't we just? <laughs> no, we really are. So there's an adjustment that has to be made. But that doesn't leave, you know, that doesn't mean we can't still put our hands in there. And sometimes you'd be surprised it's the smallest effort that one can make in the community can have the most oh, biggest effect. Oh, absolutely, I agree. Effect. Completely. So you must be super proud of your son. I'm super proud of my whole family, yeah. yeah. My daughter's an actor. She is, I remember you talking yeah, about that, yeah. So, they, they, neither one of them like me talking about it. So okay, well, we'll, we'll yeah. see. But I do there. remember one thing you told me ages ago about this really funny story when your son was quite small, he tried to move a football with his mind. Yeah, and he, and that he, made me he, laugh so much. <laughs> well, the, you know, just the idea of when a child has no inhibitions and it and it moves like that, all those kind of things just make you feel like you know. Did he do it? Yeah. So, did it did of course it he work? did. He's he's a pro now. You know what I mean? He, he's moving balls all over the place with his mind and his feet. You know, it's brilliant. That's amazing. Um, what is Salsa song? Uh, well, we're a sound system, an amalgamation of good dance music. There's um, three of us from the north side. So obviously you got an extension of your family. So you have two kids, right? But you have a third member of your family, I believe, called Reuben. Ah, oh, Reuben. So you told me about yeah. Rubes. Is it Rubes? Reuben, yeah, Reuben. So Reuben, your tortoise? Yes. So you love your tortoise, obviously. And my tortoise loves me, yes. So probably the same age as your son, as your kids, a bit younger. He's no, eighteen. No, he's, he's he? eighteen. He's a teenager. My kids are well into. They're nearly thirty. Are they? Oh my god! Yeah, really? Yeah. Oh gosh, that's making me old. feel old. So tell us about Reuben. I mean, I didn't even know you had a tortoise. Actually, it's quite a big tortoise as well. We spend a little a bit of our time in the Caribbean. The estate there, we have a lot of land turtle. We live by the sea. And my first real experience with turtles and, and wildlife on that level was in Antigua and watching turtles hatch on a beach. Oh my God, that sounds in magical. The night, which was just, I, I don't know. I can't That's even, mind blowing. I've yeah. ne- you know, it's nothing I've been ever been able to explain or articulate. You, you just got to be there. And the thing was, 
we were there because of the moonlight, not knowing it was in the time and blah, blah. This is like, my daughter must have been about, yeah, two. So that was the first time. So having had that experience on the beach and where I live, there are 365 beaches. So, so the, one for every day. Yeah. Um, I, I live in Antigua. And, but you're uh, there like six months of the year, are no, you? No, no. Uh, when I need to be there. There's okay. no, um, you know, there's... Just... Two flights a day. <laughs> well, not at the moment. Oh, well, there are, yeah. The oh, flights there are. Still are you able to go? You yeah, yeah. Still we're go, still yeah. in and out. Um, some of the, we're getting ready to go again on Sunday. But yeah, so that's our home. That's where Soul to Soul's been based since 1988. And um, I've had a real affinity with just nature there because we live at the end of the village and where we live is um, we coexist with nature. And it's something that I'm very blessed to, to, to be on that particular land because I've been frequent in there since I was a child. And both my parents are from that side mm-hmm. of the island too. So for us to have a piece of it is incredible. Is that where you met Reuben? Did you no, bring no, Reuben no. Back like I the... said, going in and out and having turtles yeah. and stuff, we've always had pets. We had Reuben from, I think he was two years old, and he's a leopard turtle. We decided to keep him here in the UK because all the other turtles that we have in the Caribbean are land turtles as well. They live there on, on the land. Reuben's slightly more domesticated and just one of them things where, yeah, we seem to communicate. Oh my God, your eyes look like your eyes are wedding up. With love. <laughs> he's so, he's so cool though I mean um, well that picture you showed me you were literally looking at each other and his little head was stretching out like looking all like well one of the things is the misconception about them about being slow and stuff like that and it does feel sometimes like he's super wise so he's my pet you know he's my pet well, how does it make you feel having Reuben on your lap? I mean, how I've never experienced that thing with... I well, have with dogs, but I'm trying to imagine it with a turtle. Turtle, cat, anything that you love, you know what I mean? How do you love a pet or an animal differently to a family member? It's it's a different thing because um, the pet thing is you're making it out, you're making it all up as it as you go along and blimey, it's a pet in your captivity. It almost seems so wrong. There's a right to it, and now. I guess as animals have evolved, there's domesticated animals and there's wild animals. People look have iguanas, snakes, True. you know, gerbils, cats. So where does where does um, Reuben live in in your house? Does he? He has he his have... own house within the area. It's so not he's an got aquarium. His own little house. Okay. Yeah, he has special lights that you know if it's too if he's not getting enough vitamins outside because it's really cold here all the time. So he's like his house has the lights that so look after. Some sunshine for him. Well, yeah, he's vitamin D, you know, cart for his shell and stuff like that. That's so and, sweet. Yeah. And like, we've had him since he's little bit, so yeah, he's he's So cool. do you chat to him? Is he like your yeah, mate? Yeah, you chat? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We pr- spend proper time together. He likes smoking trees as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he probably gets a bit stoned. Animals can get stoned, can't they? Well, yeah, he's, that's how wise he is. And you have to understand that's a species from many moons ago. So that's where the wisdom lies. I, I guess so. You know, yeah. he, he keeps hmm. me grounded. How long do they? How long do they live for? The ones we got back home are coming up to probably sixty, seventy. They a hundred of years. You know, yeah. they outlive us. So when you at your house in Antigua, what's the first thing you can see when you look outside? The Atlantic Ocean. And what's the first thing you see out beside your house here in London? Um, I see all my neighbours. I see the tower, post office tower. <laughs> <laughs> I live in Camden. Yeah. Uh, where, again, you know, it's a kind of cool area. We've got the park right there, um, the canals right there. So do you love each sort of place yeah, uh, equally? Two different contrasts, mm. you know. Mm. Here is the shitty, as I call it, and we live in the shitty. It's what's made soul to soul. I'm blessed because I, I get to go back to my ancestral roots, mm. which I just happen to be in the Caribbean. Do you feel like different sides of your personality comes out in different places? It's funny, I keep, I, I think I might have mentioned it before about David Bowie. Yeah, so one day I'm Jazzy B and the next day I'm Mr. Romeo. Yeah, no, I get that. No, I, I, I can see that. I can yeah. see that. And um, it actually worked for us. A little, a little story, a bit of trivia, is that like throughout 89 to 92, although I left London in 92, there wasn't any accolades for soul to soul and what had actually happened. And again, that actually worked for us so many years later because I was still here. And that time, 
raising my children, I was so lucky to have kind of the best of both worlds where I was still engaged in the music industry at a reasonable level whilst raising my children. Yeah, good balance. And then being able to raise my children, them turning professional and, and never left the game. What do they think of your music? I think they enjoy it and everything. Yeah. Again, they're, they're, they're still carving their way, but they're both professionals in their own right. Uh, I mean, do they play you different living. types of music all and the time. educate you? Yeah, yeah man, all the mm. time. We always, you know, I do two radio shows at home. They they used to live at home, so we still communicate. And then, you know, the technology's made it really interesting. You know, sometimes they'll always, you know, send me a song or especially... It, like my son watches a lot of videos and is into visuals, so we're you know always going backwards and forwards with that too. So you just gave me, um, very kindly gave me some vinyl. What was that? These are releases that are currently out there on Funky Dread Records, majorly a tribute to Club Classics Volume 1. So we've taken various different producers and DJs and over a series of remixes have um, done the reissues of um, vinyl. Okay. Coloured, different coloured vinyl. The design's beautiful, actually. Yeah, we, we've that? gone back. We've gone back to life. Excuse yeah, the pun. <laughs> so, you know, everything's important. The, the, I mean, the during lockdown, sleep, you should have re-released that again because it's back to well, life, it did. back to well, reality. Uh, that's what's in oh, your... Oh, I see. Yeah, okay. There you go. <laughs> that is the, th- the COVID theme tune coming yeah. out of lockdown, isn't it? There you it? go, yeah. Obviously, Camden is a really important place to you, and the Music Hall of Fame. We just had a plaque put up, probably I don't know, a year ago or so, a couple of years okay, ago. Okay, yeah, yeah, just at the, at the first lockdown, actually, in the just last before March. the first. Yeah, so that was obviously a, a big deal. So, how yeah. how did that make you feel when you got that? I saw a photo of you crying. I have to say, in the newspaper. Oh right, no, I just had a fly it's, in my eye. Oh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> um, it well, you really know cute. what? I've, I've, uh, you know, now you mention that we, I've got a statue. I, was, I thought it was a plaque. You've got a statue. A statue in Finsbury Park. Oh, I didn't know. We that. got a plaque at, at the fridge in Brixton, and then two years ago we were given the Walk of Fame in Camden. The Walk of Fame. That's it. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. So, what does the future hold? Do you think? Where do you want? I hate that thing when people say, "Where do you want to be in ten years?" Like, what do you hope to kind of happen over the next few years? Have you got any more goals? Always a happy face, a thumping mm. bass for a loving race. Keep on moving. Oh, what a shame. That's the end of today's show. Hope you've enjoyed it as much as I did. You've been with me today, Lulu LeVay, on my new podcast, Where Love Lives. My special guest has been the enigmatic Jazzy B. This show was recorded at the Very Lush Studios at Soho Radio and was produced and edited by me. I look forward to seeing you next time. And don't forget, follow me at Dr. Lulu LeVay. I won't bite, I promise. Follow me down.